This audio recording is presented by New City in downtown Orlando. First Thessalonians chapter 5, verses 23 to 28. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely. And may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. Brothers and sisters, pray for us. Greet all the brothers and sisters with a holy kiss. I put you under oath before the Lord to have this letter read to all the brothers and sisters. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. This is God's word. Thanks be to God. Please be seated. So as you can tell, we've come to the end of our study through 1 Thessalonians. We've come to Paul's final words uh, in his first letter to the church in Thessalonica. Uh, Think with me about the concept of final words and think with me about how important they are. Uh, I've used this idea in other contexts, but I think it's relevant uh, and helpful again this morning. Uh, Whether they're the final words you write in an email or a letter or the final words you speak into a voicemail on a hot topic or or the final words uh, that someone says or writes when they realize that they're likely coming to the end of their life on this earth. Uh, We intuitively get, regardless of how big the context, uh, that final words are very important. How you close off a communication is incredibly important. It's important for two reasons. Uh, The first is this, most obviously our last communication to someone, if they're still listening, uh, our last communication to to someone in total or or in in regards to an idea, our last communication is usually something that they're going to remember compared to everything else. And uh, there's also a higher likelihood um, that what we say last will help interpret the rest of what we said. In other words, from the time of experiencing communication, I will usually remember what was said last and I will often interpret what came before through the lens of what was said last. That's the power and the importance of final words. Uh, earlier this year, my, my brother was diagnosed with, uh, with, with cancer and he had open skull uh, surgery to remove this tumor in his brain. And the surgeons told him prior to the surgery, uh, there's a slight chance that you won't make it through the surgery and we have to tell you that. But then they said, in addition to that, there's a pretty significant chance uh, that you will lose certain abilities because of where the tumor is. And most specifically, and including some other motor skill realities, they said there's a, there's a really good chance, um, a better chance than what you'd like to know, uh, that you will not be able to speak uh, when you wake up from the surgery. And so you can imagine what my brother did between the diagnosis and the surgery, like three days. Not work, not play golf, not work on one of his other hobbies. He got himself in front of his friends and his family, as many as he possibly could, and he very deliberately spoke to them. Why did he do that? Because he intuitively knew that the last thing he said to his friends and family would most likely be something they remember, and he wanted, it to, he wanted those words to convey the depths of his heart. And he also knew, being a sinner like me, that there were, there were certain relationships where he needed to go and do some work so that they would experience their relationship with him through the lens of those final words. I'm just saying what we intuitively know, that final words are really, really important. 
When you grow up and when you've communicated for a while, you begin to realize that your final words have this incredible power. I'm personally very, very grateful for my brother coming to me and speaking from his heart to me after 40 years of him being my older brother. I will always remember what he said. And it helped me see more clearly, more graciously, and more redemptively all that we went through for 40 years. In in our passage today, Paul is speaking intentional final words. He realizes that he has come to the end of his communication to this beautiful church that he had planted three or four months before. And in his final words, uh, captured in this letter, conveyed to his audience, he gives two promises, three practices, and one pronouncement. So two promises, three practices, one pronouncement. By the way, no outline this morning. I didn't get to it. I apologize. So nothing on the screen other than the text, but I don't think it'll be hard to follow along. Two promises, three practices, one pronouncement. First, let's look in the passage. He gives two promises. Look in verses 23 and 24. Uh, Technically, Paul gives two prayers uh, in verse 23, and then he makes a promise in verse 24 uh, that his prayers are going to be answered. If all we had was verse 23, I would say that Paul gave two prayers. But by virtue of what he writes in verse 24, his prayers become promises in verse 23. Look at at verse 24. He who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. That is what he just prayed in the previous verse. So what does Paul pray for in in verse 23? Paul prays for something in our present, in essence promises something to us in the present. And Paul prays for something in our future or promises us something in the future. Let's start with the present. Look at at the start of verse 23. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely. So the word here, uh, completely, is a a Greek word that is very rare. It's only found here in the New Testament. And, And it speaks to every part or every component of a reality being included. And and so Paul prays and then promises that in every aspect of our lives, every part of our hearts, every realm and relationship, in total, through and through, God himself is sanctifying you, cleansing you, transforming you, growing you, making you more holy, making you more like Jesus. He who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. You may remember from previous sermons that Paul, just prior to this promise, gave 17 commands in 11 verses. I don't know if you're counting with me, but the final instructions of 1 Thessalonians 5 included 17 commands. Before bringing the letter to a close, Paul is very deliberate and he is very intentional to inform his audience of the fact that it is God himself who is at work in them and it is God himself who is in fact growing them. And so as the original audience, and as we look back to those 17 commands, we look back to them through the lens of verses 23 and 24. Verses 23 and 24 do not negate the commands that Paul gave, nor make irrelevant the commands that Paul gave. They just help us understand how how to place and position the commands that he gave. In short, Whenever we obey a command in scripture, we are giving forth and showing forth the evidence of God Almighty at work inside of us. 
When, when they or we are more patient with everyone, verse 14. When they or we are increasingly seeking to, to do good to everyone, verse 15. When they or we increasingly abstain from every form of evil, verse 22. We are bearing the fruit of God's sanctifying work in us. Paul does not hesitate to give 17 commands. But in his prayer and in his promise, he makes it really clear that our ability to obey and our ability to follow the instructions of the Bible, that ability is ultimately empowered by and dependent upon and attributable to God and his sanctifying work inside of us in every part of your life, in every area of your heart, in every realm and in every relationship. And you can say, well, how does God sanctify me? Well, he at least gives you 17 commandments and then he gives you a mind to understand them, a heart to love them and the will to follow through in obedience to them. It's not confusing to Paul to give us 17 commandments and say, do them and then say, oh, by the way, when you did them, that was God. He was in you and he was empowering you and he was enabling you. And so the first promise that Paul gives in our text is this promise of sanctification, that in the present right now, God is sanctifying us. He is making us more holy. He is growing us. He is transforming us into the likeness of Christ. But but keep reading in verse 23. There's another promise here. This one's about the future. May your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. So Paul has already said in this letter, he's already written about the day that Jesus returns to earth and he's already written about the day where Jesus comes back and establishes his kingdom in fullness. And Paul has already said in this letter that when Jesus comes back, uh, sinners will experience his wrath and the followers of Christ will experience reward, will experience glory. And so then Paul prays in verse 23 and then he promises in verse 24 that in that day, the Thessalonians will be kept blameless in their entire being. He's just saying, there's no part of you that won't be guarded by God, soul, spirit, and body. And so Paul is promising that when Jesus returns and when Jesus establishes his new heavens and his new earth, when he comes and establishes his kingdom, finally, perfectly, and physically, He is saying to them, you will not be judged like the wicked. You will be blameless and you will be kept or guarded as blameless at that day. So I want us to stop and think. I want us to stop and think about how incredible this promise actually is. The promise is this, the Thessalonians and us will be included in Jesus's glorious and righteous kingdom of peace. And the promise is also this, The promise is that we are blameless and we will be kept blameless when Jesus comes back. I want to press into what is an apparent contradiction in verse 23. I want to press into it. I want to understand it. I want to see it. I want us to see how incredible this promise is. Think for just a second. The phrase kept blameless when Jesus returns presumes that the Thessalonians are blameless when Jesus comes back. And since Paul taught that Jesus would come, would come back at any moment, this verse presumes that they're already blameless in the present as they read the letter. Did you get that? You will be blameless when he comes back. He could come back at any moment. You're blameless now. How can verse 23 both say, you need sanctification. You are not blameless. 
and you'll be kept blameless when he returns. Sanctification presumes that we're sinful. How can we be both sinful and blameless? How can we be both sinful and blameless? And how can we be blessed and not judged when Jesus returns? You're like, he's given the gospel in the first point? What is happening? Ordinarily, we do this at the third point. We might do it again. It's the gospel. He's telling them, you're blameless in God's eyes right now. And because of that, when Jesus returns in righteousness and holiness and wrath, you will be guarded as blameless. And you'll be regarded as blameless because the only blameless man who ever lived went to the cross and died for your sin, your shame, and your blame. And so now God, the judge, sees you as blameless. God, the Father, is at work in you because he knows you need sanctification. But he sees you as whole and perfect and righteous and acceptable and beautiful in his sight. What an incredible promise. Not just about the future, but about right now. He's at work in you and he regards you as blameless. If you're a Christian, as you reflect back on 1 Thessalonians as a book, Paul wants you to keep these two promises in mind. And in fact, Paul wants you to understand the entire book through the lens of these two promises. Right now, God is himself sanctifying you. Right now, God, as he says very deliberately, God himself is sanctifying you. As you sit in that chair right now, God is at work in you. One degree of glory to the next. One little bit of transformation to the next. And you sit there as one with the status of blameless. Because Jesus Christ took your blame and your guilt on the cross. See, I think most of us, as we went through the 17 commands of chapter 5, I think we felt the need to grow in certain areas. Maybe 17 different areas in our lives. And Paul wants us to view those verses and he wants us to view that need through this lens. I was really struck by how impatient I am when, when we learn in verse 14 that Paul says, be patient with everyone. Paul says, Ted, sit down. God is doing something about your impatience. He's doing something about every part of you. And keep in mind that in Jesus, he sees you as patient. He already enjoys you as though you're patient with everyone all the time. You're getting better. But in getting better, God will not love you anymore. I had a really hard time with verse 15. Damien says, I want y'all to persecute everyone with goodness and kindness. Everyone, even those enemies who are trying to hurt you. Paul says, I want you to look back into verse 15 through these verses and realize that God is making you more like Jesus. But as he makes you more like Jesus, you won't all of a sudden become blameless. You'll become less guilty, but you will never become more blameless. You're already utterly blameless in Christ, even in regards to the sins of revenge. Paul says two promises through which I want you to see this entire letter. You are getting better and God is gonna protect you when Jesus comes back. Uh, Next, in his final words, not just two promises, but but three practices. 
All right, if you wanna look at the screen or if you wanna look at your worship folder insert, I want you to notice how peculiar verses 25 through 27 are. Here's why they're peculiar. Paul in verses 12 to 22 gave 17 instructions. And then he clearly, you can tell from the grammar and the vocab, he clearly turned and transitioned towards the close of the letter and he gives these two promises in verses 23 and 24. If you're familiar with Paul, you would suspect him to go right to verse 28. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. But instead, we get three more instructions, three more commands, three more directives. And so either Paul forgot about these three, he's like, oh, add these right there. Or there's something special and something unique about these three commands. You got to remember, Paul was not using a word processor. Uh, Paul was using, if you will, a pen and paper. He couldn't move the cursor up and say, before 23 and 24, let's add three more commands. So on the one hand, maybe he just adds them here. But on the other hand, maybe he's doing something intentional here. Maybe there's something about these three directives or practices that are unique and different compared to the rest. I personally think Paul's doing something very intentional here. What I want to do is I want to walk you through the three practices and I want, to, I want to tell you what I think Paul's doing. Okay, so f- let's walk through these. Just add these to the final instructions on one, on one level, okay? Verse 25, brothers, pray for us. Or siblings, keep praying also for us. There's an also in the Greek that is not, uh, did not make it into our English translations. So Paul has already said in verse 17, I want you to pray without ceasing. And so he says, first, keep praying. But then more than that, Paul specifically says, when you're praying, pray for us. And so the first practice that that Paul calls for in his final words is a strong prayer life. A strong prayer life that's not only about you, but also about people trying to advance Jesus' kingdom around the world. Practice number one, prayer. Uh, Practice number two, verse 26, uh, greet all the brothers and sisters with a holy kiss or keep greeting all the siblings with a holy kiss. And so in this verse, Paul's calling for an intentional an inclusive and an intimate pursuit of gospel community. Paul actually writes, keep greeting. That's intentionality. And then he writes, greet all the siblings. So he's saying regardless of race, regardless of class, regardless of gender, regardless of holiness, all the siblings. That's inclusivity. And then he writes, I want you to greet with a holy and pure and moral kiss. For any culture, that's intimacy. Practice one, develop a deep prayer life. Uh, Practice two, lean into gospel community more and more. Get to the place where the word siblings is not not a biological category, but a spiritual category. I want you to see how Paul addresses them as siblings in all three verses of these directives. I want you to know, in case you lost track, Paul used the phrase brothers and sisters or siblings 16 times in this book. This book takes up two pages in my Bible. Six times, or maybe five. I'll go with five. I don't have a great memory. I think five times, Paul, it's at least five, Paul refers to God as Father. In two pages in my Bible, 21 mentions of our spiritual family. If you know the Bible, especially what Jesus said, you would have to say biblically that our primary family is not our biological family. It's our local gospel community. 
That's probably worth another sermon, but not during Christmas. And I don't think we can get there from here during Christmas. Paul is saying, develop an extravagant prayer life. Live really intentional with gospel community. And then he says, third, verse 27, I put you under oath before the Lord to have this letter read to all the siblings. It's really, really difficult to convey the forcefulness of what Paul actually writes. It's something like this. I charge you or I adjure you or I force you to take an oath before the Lord. Now, he doesn't say, this is really important to me. It would mean a lot to me if you would make sure everybody read this. He doesn't say, hey, it's my opinion that the Lord would want everybody to hear this. He doesn't say, would you be willing to take an oath before the Lord in regards to reading this? He says, I force you to take an oath before the Lord to have this read to everyone. Either Paul is this narcissistic megalomaniac or he believes that there is something very special about this letter. He either thinks the world revolves around him or he thinks that he has some unique authority when it comes to the kingdom of God. I mean, think about that. Only a narcissist, a crazy person, which Paul can't be, he's so brilliant in what he writes, a narcissist or a spirit-filled, spirit-inspired writer of the scriptures would say, I charge you before the Lord, have this read to everyone. The bottom line, we know from Paul's letters, including this one, that Paul was very aware of the fact that he had a unique authority in the kingdom and that he was used by God to write letters to other people. That's why in 1 Corinthians, he's like, okay, God said all that. I'm gonna say this. Okay, back to God saying this. I'm gonna say this. He has this incredible consciousness of the fact that he is writing the very words of God. And Paul says in verse 27 to us, in our context, keep reading, keep reading to someone else and have someone else read to you God's word. So keep on praying. Keep on leaning into gospel community. Uh, Keep on reading God's word. Think big picture with me again for a second. Is it possible that these three instructions were intentionally put here and they're quite special compared to the other, let's say, 17 in this chapter? Why did Paul do it that way? I think there's two reasons. First, of all the instructions in the epistle, if you will follow these three, you'll find yourself following the others as well. I don't think you can say that about any other three instructions in the book. I think Paul's thinking is something like this. I know there's a lot of instruction in this book, but the three most important instructions that will result in you following the rest of the instructions are pray a lot, so God tells you what to do. Live humbly in community, so God can tell you what to do. And give great respect to the Bible, so God can tell you what to do. You get that? These three are supreme because they will lead you to all the other instructions. And so I think Paul is saying, listen, I know even in an auditory culture, 17 instructions is a lot. But if you'll just remember these three, I think you're going to make a lot of headway on the rest. But I think there's something more that can be said. Or maybe we could say the same thing can be said from a different angle. I have noticed in my life and in the lives of others that I have known and led that we experience God's sanctifying work the most, verse 23, when we're praying a lot, living sacrificially in community a lot, 
and giving large chunks of our heart and our time to God's word. I have noticed that I seem to have the greatest experience of God's faithfulness, verse 24, and God's grace, verse 28, when I'm praying regularly and when I'm praying for more than just myself. When I'm really submissively living in gospel community and when I don't go to the word to pick it apart, but I go to the word to have it pick me apart. Uh, There's a phrase that theologians and pastors use. They've been using it for a long time. It's called the means of grace. It's called the means or the channels of grace. Those avenues, those venues, those environments, those habits, those disciplines where God tends to communicate and tends to extend his transforming grace to his people. Where can we go? What disciplines can we foster? How can we better organize our lives to get ourselves in the presence of and get ourselves connected to the channels of God's grace? Because Paul has just told us, after all, that it's God's powerful grace that sanctifies us. So I played, I played soccer in college, and in every offseason, uh, our coach would make us race the cross-country team on a very difficult trail uh, in Lookout Mountain, Georgia. And I, I thought of myself as being in good shape, but I was certainly not in cross-country shape. Uh, especially during the off season after Christmas. Uh, no way. And, and before the race started, my freshman year, uh, the coach was very clear to us. He says, listen, this is harder than anything you did all last season. I want you to know that there, there's going to be water every mile along the trail. You'd be wise to stop and take some in. At the first water station, I was doing fine. I thought there's no reason to stop now and take in water. At the second water station, I was so far behind everyone else and I was hurting so bad, I was like, I can't stop and drink water at this point. I have got to keep going. Between the second and the third water stations, I just fell down. I literally did for a while. I was like, I don't think I'm gonna make it. I'm out here in the woods and they're never gonna find me and I'm gonna die. (laughs) You better believe every subsequent year I drank a lot before the race and I stopped at every watering hole and gave myself what my body needed to go through that environment. That's how the means of grace work. The Bible says God is sustaining you at all times. God is always growing you. But but additionally, God has provided you with means or venues or environments or disciplines like prayer and community and Bible reading where you can go and just drink deeply of his transforming grace. We don't always instantly appreciate the strength that we're gathering during that time. But I can tell you, across time, you will learn the inestimable value of these means of grace. Where we go and plug ourselves into his transforming power and get equipped for what comes in the future. So so Paul gives two promises. He gives three practices. And then he gives finally this one pronouncement. When I was in uh, middle school and high school, I worked for my dad. And my dad owned an HVAC slash plumbing slash electrical services uh, company. And so from the ages 12 to 16, I helped install uh, HVAC equipment every summer, every holiday, and some weekends. And uh, when I turned 16, I was overjoyed to find out that that summer, the company's delivery man uh, quit the job. And I got there thinking I would do what I had always done, but instead, my dad on that first day taught me how to drive a one-ton dump truck, and he gave me a map. Now, a map, kids, if you don't know what that is, it's like a piece of paper, and like it unfolds like this. Um, We didn't have like 
We didn't have maps in our cars. We didn't have it in our, on our phones, right? And every day I would come into the office at six or seven in the morning and, and my dad would ha- have a handwritten list of deliveries that he wanted me to make that day. It could be anywhere in the state of South Carolina. And every day he would give me more chores than I could possibly get done because he believed that spare time in the hands of a 16-year-old is dangerous. But every day he would also give me two or three tasks that had to be done. And he would indicate to me, as you prioritize your day, don't do these other seven at the expense of these three. And make sure you do these three no matter what happens to the seven. At the top and at the bottom of the page, my dad would write in huge block letters what he would say to me as he handed me the piece of paper. I love you. Be safe. Even if you can't get the two or three done, it is not worth risking your life and the life of other people to accomplish these realities. So in a day and an age without cell phones, okay, let alone smartphones or tablets, okay? In a day and an age, listen to this, only the owners and the managers had beepers back then. In that day and age, I would walk out of the office with a handwritten list. I would know what my priorities were if I couldn't get anything else done. And I would have it clearly communicated to me this one idea, this one pronouncement. I love you, be safe. In the same way that I I read, remembered, and interpreted the entire list through that pronouncement, in that same exact way, Paul wants the Thessalonians to always remember and to always understand this entire letter through the pronouncement of verse 28. Here it is. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ literally with you. There is no verb in the Greek. It literally reads the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ with you. Uh, In the English, we feel this need to provide a verb so we have a complete sentence and Microsoft Word doesn't tell us it's a fragment. But in the Greek language, there is no need for a verb. So Paul is saying outside of tense and outside of time, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ has been with you. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ is with you. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ will be with you. Understand that as you look at the rest of the book. At the end of every book Paul wrote in the Bible, he pointed to the grace, the unmerited favor, the unconditional love of God. Every book ended with grace. Paul's saying, in light of everything else I've written, I want you to remember this. And I want you to read everything else through this lens. You don't have to earn God's love. You cannot do anything to lose God's love. 17 commands. Then a promise that God is changing you and that God already sees you as blameless. Then three more commands that I think will take you right into the grace that God is offering you. And Paul still won't leave it there. He's like, I know their propensity to make it about themselves instead of Jesus. I know their propensity to focus on the commands instead of focusing on the grace. And so there's no confusion. He says outside of time and outside of any restriction, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ with you. There is this obvious connection uh, in the text There's this obvious connection with verse 23. Why are we blameless? 
Why will we be protected as blameless when Jesus comes in judgment? Because Jesus, the Lord Jesus Christ, before he comes in wrath, the Lord Jesus Christ came in grace. You see that? The one who comes to judge is the one who came in grace. The one who comes to punish the wicked is the one who came and was punished for the wicked. The one who comes to put his eternal kingdom, the new heavens and the new earth, onto this earth, it says you're included not by these commands, but by my grace. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you that it is absolutely true that everything that must be done is done by you in our salvation. We praise you and thank you that you have decided to energize us in this life by making it very clear to us that we don't have to do anything in this life to have you and to have your abundant and eternal life forever. We thank you, Jesus, that you, by your Holy Spirit and the new mind and heart and will that you have given us, you are bringing forth from us newness and love and selflessness and a life like your own. We thank you that the ending word, the word through which we see everything else, is grace. We pray that you would help us to understand these things, experience these things, believe these things, live out these realities. We do want to love our city as robustly as Paul describes in chapter five, but we want to do it energized by your love and grace. And so it's in the name of Jesus we pray these things.